0: Thanks, Brad. Believe it or not, he doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't get fed his lines. I didn't know what he was going to tell you this morning. So I was listening carefully to see what he would say, what was on his list, just like you were. Well, as he said, today we have the third in our series of uh, telling the, the whole story, the, the one whole story the Bible tells in six sermons. And today we look at the solution continues. And I want to start by asking you, If you have have you ever had somebody that you just had to hang in there with? Someone who was hard to love, but you just had to hang in there. Someone who kept upsetting you or failing you, but you kept wanting what was good for them. You kept hoping to see things turn around for them. You wanted to see them be healthy and well, but they kept offending you or, or disappointing you or making you mad. Or maybe you were that person. Maybe you were the person that the people around you had to hang in there with. You knew that you were disappointing people, that you were... Uh, frustrating them, offending them, but they forgave you. They forgave forgave you and they were willing to try again with you. I'm guessing that we've all been on both sides of that of that question. If you're really honest, some of you will remember I've mentioned before a neighbor that Need and I had several years ago who moved away, uh, who's now moved away. But uh, we had a neighbor that we found very hard to get along with. This man was smart. He was energetic. He was fun to talk to because he was brilliant. He had he knew a lot about a lot of things, but he was strongly opinionated. He was enthusiastic, but he was also highly sensitive and really easily offended. And whenever we would say something that we didn't intend to be offensive, but he perceived as offensive, his anger would flash, and it would be hot. And he would start shouting at you, and wasn't above profane insults, just right there in the moment, because he needed to set you straight. Well, we're not really used to that kind of interaction with people too much. Uh, we're used to working things out a little bit more gently than that. Um, so, but in the time that he lived next to us, I would say we had as many interruptions with him as we had connections with him. I mean, there were good times, but then there were some really challenging, uh, challenging times. But I was, I was never really peaceful as a follower of Jesus with just closing the door on him and saying, I know he's my next-door neighbor, but I never talked to him. We haven't talked in years. Somehow that just didn't seem right. And so what I learned to do over time was to back away and let the dust settle, let his emotions settle, sometimes for months. And kind of, but then to move toward him at some time when he was outside, when it was sunny, when it looked like he was in a better mood, and as uncomfortable as it was, and as much as I would rather have been just sitting on my couch watching TV, uh, I would approach him. Not because I was tr- uh, great or perfect, but because as a follower of Jesus, I, I, I was thinking, as I thought about my neighbor, you know, God doesn't give up on me. I've made lots of mistakes, and I've, I've offended God, I've offended people around me at different times, but God doesn't give up on me. And I, th- I thought, this is a chance for me to learn to love someone that's hard to love. Someone who's in my life, I can't, I can't make him move away, although I, if, you know, if it were easy to do, probably I would move or have him move, but he's there. And I, this is a chance for me to learn to love someone the way God loves me, patiently, persistently, staying present, being available for relationship. And I did grow to love him in a, in a kind of sort of way over the time that he lived there, at least in the sense that um, I wanted what was best for him. I really did want him to be healthy and well. And as we learned more of his story, realized that his angry outbursts were actually uh, a kind of protection mechanism. He'd, he'd actually been raised in a very bizarre and hurtful way. And so him lashing out was a, a way of saying indirectly, you know, you're touching on some of my pain from my past. And we wouldn't know that. But that was part of where that came from. And it didn't really make me like his outbursts anymore, but it gave me a little bit more patience with them, a little more context for understanding them. Let me just put a footnote in here, though, and tell you that by telling you the story the way I am, I'm not condoning abusive behavior, okay? I'm not saying you just hang in there forever with somebody who's abusive. If I had been married to him or if I would have been his wife... His behavior if he had treated his wife this the way I'm disc- he, way he treated us, especially if he had thrown things i don 't know that he ever did, but if it involved hitting or throwing, that would have been abuse and would have been, been something that needed to be addressed much more quickly than his relationship with me, something that needed to stop much sooner so i 'm talking about the kinds of offenses that don 't cross over into abuse, but I, I tell you about this because this dynamic of repeated failure and forgiveness. Failure and forgiveness is at the core of the story, this episode of the story we're telling that we're talking about today. Failure and forgiveness in a sort of ongoing rhythm and God's patience with that. In episode three, that's mostly what this story is about, what this part of the story is about. You know, when we laid out this sermon series some time ago, I had two goals in mind for planning this sermon series. One is that we would realize together and remember that the Bible is not just a jumble of not just like a, 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 a box of puzzle pieces where some of the puzzle pieces are commandments and some of them are promises and you just pick them out at random. No, the Bible, I wanted us to realize and remember that the Bible is a story. The Bible tells a story where the pieces fit together over all of human history. What the Bible does actually is tell us the story of human history from God's perspective. Past, present, and future. So that was one goal, that we would realize and remember the Bible's not just a jumble but secondly, that we would understand and remember the story well enough that it would shape our thinking and our following of Jesus, shape the way that we've, we follow Jesus and the way we think about Scripture. When we come to Scripture, we realize that every part of it fits into the story somewhere. And it's important to know when I'm reading from the book of Psalms or when I'm reading from the book of Daniel or the book of Genesis, where does that fit in this one story that the Bible tells? So today we're taking the third step in the sequence Um, Two weeks ago, we started with the problem and the promise. We said that God created, the creation project is the good material world that God created where uh, everything in it was good and he created in such a way that everything was designed to fit together in a harmonious way, everything in that creation project. But the problem was, the problem was that the creation project was damaged almost right away by people turning away from God, the sin problem. People, and the main problem was that people didn't trust God completely. But God promised almost immediately to send a solution. So we had the problem and the promise. Last week we looked at the solution begins. That first sermon was mostly from the book of Genesis, the second mostly from the book of Exodus. And we we saw in last week that God didn't give up on the people he created. God didn't give up and pull out. God didn't bring an end. He remained present with his people. We heard last week about God saving the Israelites from slavery as the salvation event of the whole Old Testament, and you heard it reflected again in the reading from 1 Kings, pointing back to that major uh, salvation rescue that God offered his people. And once God graciously redeemed them, rescued them from slavery, then he gave them a way to live, a way of living, which was summarized in the law. He gave them a way of living that would turn them into a, a priestly people whose life together would reflect who God is in the world and would be a a beacon of hope to all the peoples on the world, on on the earth, who could look at the Israelite people and say, oh, that's what God is like. That's what the creation project was meant to be. So the solution to the sin problem had begun, and that's where we were last week. So today we look at the solution continues, and today's sermon, believe it or not, is going to give you a summary of everything that happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We're going to move pretty fast. But It helps you to know that there's a repeated cycle in all of those books, in all of those centuries of failure and forgiveness, of failure and forgiveness. God continuing to interact with His people, continuing to work at the solution. But probably the overall summary would be to tell you that the solution didn't work out all that smoothly. Sometimes the people were faithful, more times than not they were unfaithful. But I just want to summarize the story with you in a few observations as we walk through the sequence. So first of all, as we uh, come into this third episode, the people of God are settling into the the promised land, in the land of Canaan. They've come north out of Egypt to the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea into the land of Canaan. And as they settle in there, they get drawn into living like the people around them. The main reason for that is that they're settling into a land where they're going to be farmers. They're going to raise crops and animals, and that's going to be their livelihood. But think about where they've come from. What's on their, resu- their work resume so far? Slavery, wandering around in the desert. Slavery, wandering around in the desert for 450 years if you add them all up. They don't, they're not farmers. So they learn to farm from the people who are in this land, who are already there and farming, but the, which is fine. But the spiritual problem that that creates for them is that the people who live there worship many gods. The people who live in the land of Canaan Worship many different gods. So their their goal is to keep their, their land and their animals and their families productive and healthy. And so they, they, they worship any God they can basically they, they, they can think of. So there's a God of the weather, there's a God of the land, there's a God of the storms, there's a God of fertility or fruitfulness of the land. There's a God of fertility or fruitfulness of the people. There's a God of healing. There's a God of the underworld, a God of the overworld, the skies. And there's a God, gods of particular places. And so a lot of their lives, a lot of their religious imagination is around doing the right rituals to keep these gods on your side. Carry out the right rituals of sacrifices and rituals to keep these gods on your side. And then the, the job of these gods is to give the people what they want, to take care of them. So what that means is that here come the Israelites settling into this cultural setting so that trusting in God, trusting in one God, makes them weird. It makes them strange. And it makes it challenging for them to hold on to the worship of one true God in the context of the people that they're learning from, learning from about how to farm when what the, these people are telling them is, you really need to cover all your bases. You need to worship, all, placate all these gods It was also hard to hold on to the fact that this one living God, the one true God, was interested more in the way they were living than he was in their rituals and sacrifices. Now, he did give them rituals to follow, festivals and sacrifices and so on, but he really wanted more than that. He wanted justice and he wanted mercy. He wanted them to to live a particular way of life. But that was hard to hold on to when the context they were in, everybody was all about the rituals about pleasing the gods and keeping them on your side. Now, the, the children of Israel, like the Canaanites, were like you and me, like people from all the centuries. Mostly, they want to live in peace, and they want to be prosperous. They want to be wealthy enough to be comfortable. And so they're just concerned mostly about the things they need to have to be comfortable and wealthy. They want money. They want children. They want security or protections. They want money for, so that they can be prosperous, and they can have power, with each other. They want children because that represents family and longevity and care for, for themselves as they age, to be part of a community. And they want protection or safety, security from their enemies. So while the children of Israel, the Israelites, do worship Yahweh, they continue to worship Yahweh. They also add in the worship of all these other gods just to make sure that all their bases are covered. Just to make sure. So when you read the Old Testament and you hear the prophets uh, 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 condemning the people or, or calling them to something, it's not so much that they're not worshiping God, it's that they're not fully trusting in God and they're worshiping all these other gods as well. Eventually then they also realize that the people around them are safe because they have kings and they have armies and so God's people say, well, we want a king too. We want a real flesh and blood king and we want an army to protect us as well. Again, moving away from fully trusting in God. So they lived in the real world. And they were willing to do whatever was needed to be powerful and prosperous, to get these things that everybody wants. Philosophers call this this philosophy pragmatism. Pragmatism is when you're willing to do whatever works. When you have goals in mind and you're willing to do whatever you need to to accomplish those goals, you're being pragmatic or practical is another way to say it. They were practical. They were willing to do whatever they needed to to accomplish their goals, to take care of themselves. I think that might sound a little familiar to us. Familiar to us. Because among the peoples on the earth right now, if you talk to people from other countries, other continents, Americans are considered among the most pragmatic people on the earth right now. We're known uh, to uh, people from other cultures as the people who tend to value whatever works. We have goals that we want to reach, and we tend to be willing to, to, to value whatever helps us accomplish those goals. And the sooner the better. And that impacts our spiritual lives as well because the more we're steeped in that the more we kind of move into thinking about our faith as one where we have our goals and it's mostly god's job to help us meet our goals and when god isn't helping us meet our goals we get mad at god we get disappointed with god frustrated in our walk with god because he's not helping me meet my goals and i hope that one of the things you take away from this sermon series is the realization that I'm actually living in God's story. God's not living in my story in the, in the same way, right? I'm, I'm part of the, the created pro, creation project that God has put in place, and part of what I want to hold on to is that my true purpose in life, part of the reason I'm here is to help God reach God's goals. I'm here to help God reach God's goals. So it was hard for the children of Israel to hold on to that distinction as well, hold on to an emphasis on justice and mercy and on a certain way of living when all the people around them were focused more on keeping the gods on their side. It was hard to hold on to how am I staying on God's side? How am I keeping myself on God's side? As I said, I think you and I know something of this mindset because we want safety, we want peace, we want comfort, we want security. We want money and we want children or to be part of a family or community. We want protection from our enemies. And we can drift into being willing to do whatever we need to, to worship whatever we need to, to accomplish those things. I once had a colleague who was seen as a star, a rising star in the company I worked for. He was in his mid-30s. He was married and had two daughters. But he was working 65 and 70-hour weeks on a regular basis when most of us we're doing our best to keep up at 50 hour weeks you know 50 plus hour weeks that would sometimes peak over that but i noticed over time that this man uh, he's a he's a great guy i enjoyed him as a colleague but i noticed that he was getting larger raises than some of the rest of us and he was being promoted he was seen as a star this was valued in the company him uh, spending this much time to gain more money and to gain more um i guess prestige in the company more uh promotions and after a while, I started thinking, now, is that something I'm willing to do? For me, it would have involved sacrificing the amount of time I wanted to spend with working, you know, investing in my marriage. We had three uh, school-age children at home at that point, and it would have meant sacrificing time that I had with them. And I, I had, to, you have to, had to make a conscious choice here. How, can, how, how much work do I need to do to do well in my company, but how do I balance that with the other goals that I have in my life? I mean, it seemed what he was doing seemed to be working for him. And so as a pragmatist, I might have said, well, that's what I'm going to do too, regardless of what it costs me in terms of my marriage, in terms of my family, in terms of my commitment to my congregation and what have you. We had a friend uh, several years ago who was desperate to increase his income this is a, a, a man who was an engineer, so I'm guessing he made more money than I did. Uh, but there were things he wanted to do financially that he couldn't do with the money he had. And so he was, interest, he was smart, he was lively, he was funny. But several years into our friendship with him, we realized it came to light that he had developed a late-night gambling habit. He was online when I think his wife thought he was working. He was actually uh, secretly gambling online, hoping to get r- richer quicker. Being pragmatic, looking for whatever would work, you know, to get him further ahead. And by the time this came to light, I, I think what he was doing was opening new credit cards in his own name so that his wife didn't see this for a while. But by the time it came to light and it couldn't be hidden anymore, his debts were in the range of, I think, around $80,000. And they were ju- and this, I mean, $80,000 on credit cards is a lot of money. And it was a, a huge crisis in their, in their family. But again, I offer that to you just as an example of what can happen when you're just willing to do whatever you need to to move forward. So as the people of God, as the Israelites drifted into pragmatism, into doing whatever works, and away from trusting in God, God God sent them warnings. God tried to get their attention. They were basically worshiping any and all gods that might help them move forward in some way. And so through a lot of the Old Testament, what you read is God sending them warning after warning, prophet after prophet, reminding them of his promise to them, reminding them of his grace that he had extended to them, reminding them of the way of living that he had called them to. The Old Testament includes the writings of 15 prophets, if you count them up. But there are many more mentioned who didn't leave a written record of their warnings. Many, many prophets that God sent to his people. God even sometimes let them lose in a battle in an attempt to get their attention. He would sometimes let, let them experience drought or famine as a way to get their attention, to wake them up. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it did get their attention and they would uh, recommit themselves and hold on to their calling for a time. But the people were never able to hold on to what God had called them to for an extended period of time. And were never able to fully live out the way of life that he had called them to. So eventually, after repeated warnings, after centuries, centuries, repeated attempts of failure and forgiveness, failure and forgiveness, God let them be conquered and sent into exile, captured, taken away into exile as a judgment on them to bring an end to their sin. Remember we said two weeks ago, judgment always brings an end to sin, or it limits sin in some way, or it brings an end to it. So, first of all, the northern kingdom goes off into exile, the kingdom of Israel, and then 200 years later, the southern kingdom of, of Judah is taken into exile. The people were astonished when that happened. They never imagined that that would actually happen that God would let them be taken out of the land because they knew they were the chosen people. They knew that this was the promised land. They knew that, as you heard this morning from 1 Kings 8 and 9, God promised to be in that temple forever. God said, I will, my, my eyes and my attention will be on this temple, and his glory came and filled this temple. They knew that God would never let that temple be destroyed because that's where he lived. And they knew God would never turn against them. They, were, they remembered that God fought for his people, if you know the stories of the Exodus and the Judges, and so forth, God fights for His people. They never imagined that there would come a time where God would actually fight against His people or let their enemies prevail because they were His chosen people. So yes, God is gracious. God is very patient. God is, as the Scriptures say, slow to anger. God tries again and again and again over centuries of working with His people. Because God's whole purpose in the creation project is to work with and through people in the world over time. So as the solution continues, God intervenes time and time again to keep the story going when the people fail. We call this not just the presence of God, but the providence of God. God providing a way forward for his people. God's providence surrounds us all the time as God provides for us. So yes, God is gracious, God is very patient, but God eventually reaches a limit. There will, eventually comes a time where God withdraws his protection and allows judgment to enter in order to limit or to bring an end to sin. Of course, God's judgment, as we've seen also, is always accompanied by grace. God always provides a way forward, a constructive, a hopeful way forward. So in this particular part of the story, the story of the Old Testament, the people are in the promised land, when after the people um, are taken away in exile, God preserves a remnant. God preserves a group of people, enough people, brings enough people back from exile to start over. And so you see that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra as there's a small group of people who come back from exile and God starts over. Another thing that happens that's in, in, uh, from God's grace is that God promises a more permanent solution in the future. God promises a more permanent solution. He promises to send a special messenger or the Messiah, which just means the anointed one or the one who's specially sent by God. He promises to send someone who would establish, who will establish the kingdom of God. So that's the part of the story summarized version that unfolds from Joshua to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament as the solution continues. And I hope, I, hope I've said enough for you to have some idea of how I see this, sto- this part of the story connecting with us. Because we have to ask the story, or we ask the question, how does this connect with my life? Well, think about it for a minute. Our call, our call as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, is to trust him and remain faithful to him, while we wait for him to fully complete his completely fulfill his promises our call is to live as the missionary commun- missionary people of god chosen to show and tell the people of all nations who god is and what god is like and to invite them to follow jesus with us that's very very similar to the call that the people of israel lived with and i think the same thing that got in that got in the way of the israelites gets in our way today we sometimes get so wrapped up in our own concerns that we lose sight of our calling to be a missionary community. And that's even, that's even more true for those of us who live in a highly individualized and affluent society. Our attention turns inward, and we, have, we develop very high expectations for how comfortable our lives should be, how, how free of trouble our lives should be. And we usually think more about how I am doing how are we doing? We tend to think first, how am I doing? How is my life going? We don't tend to think as quickly about how are we doing, whether it's we as a family, we as a congregation, we as a community, and what can I do to help us flourish together? I'm much more generally, much more uh, likely to think about my own comfort and how comfortable I am. I'm much more focused on my goals for my life, and I tend to lose track of God's goals For my life, and as I said earlier, I think another temptation is for us is to be willing to do whatever I need to do to reach my goals. To ignore the cost to my health, to my marriage, to my connection to God, to lose track of who I'm mistreating or who I'm taking advantage of. So this morning, I I just what I'd like you to do is just examine your own hearts. And just a moment, I'm going to just be silent for a moment to give you a time to a moment to think about this question. It might sound a little complicated, but it's simpler than it sounds. How is our call to be a missionary community shaping the way you approach or think about your goals? How is our call to be a missionary community shaping the way, the way you approach or think about your goals? And by goals, I mean the, the practical things of your life, like money and children or family connections, p- protection and security. How is our missionary call shaping the way you think about those things? Let me remind you what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, about what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That was the experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament. The pagans around them are running after all these things. But Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, the things you need for your daily living, will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, seek the call of God. Seek the way of living that God calls you to. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And your heavenly Father, who knows that you need these things, will provide you with all that you need. Maybe not all that you want, but all that you need. So, as you reflect on that question, also think about whether or not you have decided that you're going to pursue these things first, and then I'll serve God. Once I'm comfortable, once my my finances are where I want them to be, once my family's where I want it to be, once I'm safe enough from, you know, protected, well-protected, then I'll think about deeply serving God, or then I'll think about fully honoring God and God's call on my life. let's just take a moment and think about your answer to this question. How is our call to be a missionary community shaping the way you think about or approach your goals in your life? Lord, I ask you to show us in this moment and in this day to show us whatever it is you want us to see about our lives. I invite you to speak to us. I know that you're gracious with us and usually focus on one step at a time. And I invite you to show us what that next step might be for each of us. I thank you for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who makes it possible for us to live out this call. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to do your work within us and among us to draw us forward into the way of life you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.